This is Healthcare Matters on WTIC News Talk 1080 and WTIC.com. Healthcare Matters is a program that delves into healthcare policy and issues. The hosts are not medical clinicians and they're not able to offer advice about medical conditions or diseases. You're always encouraged to consult your own medical provider for advice that applies to your own medical care. And now, Healthcare Matters, sponsored by Hartford Healthcare, hosted by Rebecca Stewart and Elliot Joseph. Welcome to Healthcare Matters. This is Elliot Joseph. I'm here with my co-host, Rebecca Stewart. And uh, as we recite at the beginning of each of our shows, just a reminder that this show has been ongoing for about five years. And our intention was to start a conversation about leading the way in change for the healthcare industry. And one of the biggest and most important changes in healthcare has been the deep and intentional focus on safety and quality in our healthcare system. And this is an important moment in time for the industry of healthcare and all of us as providers and people involved in providing care. 20 years ago, the entire healthcare community was rattled by a study from the Institute of Medicine. It was called To Air is Human, and it shined a spotlight on something the medical community didn't actually talk much about at that time, safety of our hospitals. And today, we're going to learn about what it takes to keep you safe, what has changed over the past 20 years, where we have made real meaningful progress, as well as the work that still stands in front of us to continue to improve the safety of our healthcare system. And we're gonna leave you today with some useful information that will arm you with some tools that you can use, you and your family, to keep you safe when you're a patient in a hospital. Every one of us will be in that situation at some point in time. And we know the headlines can be scary. We were talking quite a bit. There's a trial underway in Tennessee after a medication error led to the death of a patient. There was a lot of upheaval at a children's hospital in Florida. But this morning, again, as Elliot mentioned, on this 20th anniversary, we want to give you a sneak peek behind the curtain, a glimpse into the incredibly intense efforts all to keep you safe. And we have great guests with us this morning. Yes, we have a number of voices who are going to join us today, all coming from a little different point of view. Uh, Patricia Merriweather is the executive director with Project Patient Care. She is a national expert in the field advocating for authentic patient and family engagement across all the healthcare settings. And she personally got involved after an experience that she's going to share with us a little bit later in the show. Dr. Rocco Orlando has been a frequent guest on our show. Dr. Orlando is Hartford HealthCare's chief medical officer, a practicing surgeon who's been on the front line of medicine for decades and has a deep passion around making healthcare safer for everyone. Stephanie Calcasola leads our quality and safety for Hartford HealthCare. Stephanie is a nationally recognized leader. She started as a nurse and originally as a cardiac staff nurse. And we're happy to have Stephanie with us this morning. Eric Arlia leads the system pharmacy for Hartford HealthCare. Eric's been a pharmacist for 25 years, and he is a passionate advocate about the safe use of medications. And a little bit later in the show, we're going to be uh, having a guest call in, Maria Castellucci, who will join us. She is the safety and quality reporter at Modern Healthcare Magazine, which is a weekly national trade publication that covers the business of healthcare nationally. Uh, 
Maria writes about quality and safety efforts that are going on across the country in America's hospitals. Excellent. We have lots going on this morning, but we want to get right to Pat Merriweather. Now, Pat, you are so passionate about safety. You made a career of this, but you did this after being personally impacted. Tell us what happened to your father. It was, um, good morning, everyone. It was probably about 30 years ago, and my dad was uh, diagnosed with acute myelogenous leukemia. At that time, there was really no uh, treatment that was effective in uh, placing a patient into remission or certainly curing them. And so he entered the clinical trial. Uh, He went through chemotherapy, extensive treatment uh, within the hospital setting. And uh, he went home for a period of time. It was about a week. And he returned to the hospital because he was having pain in his back, intense pain in his back, lower back. And they wanted to find out if maybe uh, it was uh, related to the chemotherapy. So they did a biopsy of his liver. And uh, shortly after the biopsy, he complained that he was having, um, he was really feeling very nauseous. He was having extreme pain. And uh, actually, he ended up um, bleeding to death because everyone in the room, in the surgical room, had thought that uh, they had done the coagulation test, which a blood coagulation test, which is key for a leukemia patient uh, because of the platelets. And uh, they didn't do it, and as a result, it was a it was a, a painful experience for our family. And Pat, you had said that you and your entire family, that everybody was there for this really devastating, horrible time. That the care team was equally devastated. Everybody in that room. That was um, the nurses that he had been on the unit with for for many times. Uh, came down, they they just loved him uh, because he was always so happy and thanking them for all their service. They came down and they were in tears and they were embracing our family. And even for the wake and funeral services, the nurses came to it. And it wasn't because they had to. It was because they felt so strongly about the bonds that had been created with not only him but our family. So this sparked you long, you know, 10 years before this report came out, you knew there was an issue. This sparked you to create an entire really career. You sparked your own movement of change. Safety meant something. You got involved. Tell us about, I mean, I know this was sort of more specific to one smaller hospital, but what happened? You created stickers to make sure, like, I checked. This was the launch of what would really be a national movement of safety and quality. Well, it was a small part of it. We worked with the hospital CEO, and we said we weren't out to sue. We weren't out to make any, you know, point any fingers. Um, we knew that had there been improved communication, possibly through electronic communication or electronic documentation, this would never occur. But we asked them to put on the the folders. At that time, it was all still paper. Uh, put on the paper uh, folders of the patients if they were um, in danger of any type of invasive procedure because of their leukemia or other uh, related blood conditions. So it, it was very effective. It, um, but again, now we have new technology. We can put those safety measures in place for the staff 
And not only does it protect the, the patient, but it also protects the caregivers as well. Yeah, it's uh, it's almost unfathomable to to look back just a few years back, much less 30 years ago, about how much of this was paper and counting on people to take notes, read notes, move notes uh, through the system uh, in advance of the, the patient and with the patient. And today, uh, the electronic health record is uh, so much more available and, and omnipresent, uh, yet not solving all of the, 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 the challenges we faced of uh, getting the right information to the right place. Uh, so give us a few more specific examples of uh, the kind of uh, improvements that were made as you were working with that local CEO? Well, the, the CEO, again, took it to heart and really made a change within the organization. And uh, certainly it was talked about, too, at the hospital about the communication, the need to do verification, almost to do what now becomes a, 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 a surgical safety to make sure everything's in place uh, before a procedure is performed. So there were changes that occurred there, and then there were changes that occurred um, even uh, across the nation and, and certainly in Illinois as well, where I'm based out of. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, but the changes have been in terms of infection reporting, public reporting, infection-focused efforts, uh, rounding not only with the uh, physician staff but the, with the care team. Uh, the electronic health record is wonderful. It can prevent errors as long as people don't turn off the safety check. Mm-hmm. And, <laughs> and there's, there's so many improvements that have occurred, and, and yet we still have um, a number of errors that occur each year. Yes. And some that are uh, serious adverse events like a death or uh, an impairment of a patient to long term, and then there's those that uh, affect not only uh, their stay within a hospital but contribute to care that's needed after they leave the hospital. So, so we still have errors, yes. and one is too many. That is the whole movement. I want to bring in Dr. Rocco Orlando, our chief medical officer, to get a little perspective from that medical side. And if I do, you remember? Can you go back, harken back those twenty years to when this Institute of Medicine? report was first released. What went through your mind when you first read this? So hearing Pat's story brings back painful memories of uh, what it was like without adequate systems uh, because no one on that care team looking after Pat's dad wanted to have a medical error. And yet uh, the absence of a checklist, uh, simply a list of things that you do before you do a liver biopsy. What are the things that you check? And you methodically go through that. And we've learned in our industry from aviation in particular where the airplane doesn't take off without the pilot and the co-pilot going through a checklist. We need to do that same thing without fail and to do it every time we perform a procedure. And part of that is about culture, not just having the checklist but being sure – Every time we're using the checklist and adhering to those safety behaviors. And that's something you do now, yes? We do. Uh, we now have uh, in all of our in our operating rooms and our procedural areas, uh, a checklist is now standard operating procedure for how we perform procedures. Well, one thing I'd ask, and I'm going to ask Stephanie Calcasola to, to talk about this as uh, someone who uh, was a practicing nurse and uh, uh, understands my question is about sort of the hierarchy of power mm-hmm. in uh Rocco talked about culture, um, when things are identified, uh, either whether through a checklist or um, just in the normal course of business, 
Stephanie, what's your perspective about that power gradient between nurses and doctors and other clinicians? And what does it take? What, what, what does it take to create an environment where there is that willingness to say, time out, hold on a second? Sure. So as, as Dr. Orlando shared, uh, the use of checklists, uh, part, part of our role now is to ensure that people feel comfortable speaking up and create a culture of safety. Um, and that drives our safety movement for the ability for any clinician, a nurse or a physician, to have that dialogue that's open, to feel safe, to arc up or cross-check each other to ensure best practices are, 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 are followed through. And as leaders, um, we all have that responsibility to ensure a collective mindfulness to drive uh, that trust in the organization that employees and staff feel comfortable sharing concerns, safety errors, so that then we can use our tools and processes to reduce that error, create systems that reduce the potential for harm, and, and, and help mistake-proof our, our processes of care. Yeah, so the notion of, uh, of timeouts, mm-hmm. uh, you know, as a parent, I, was, I gave a lot of timeouts, and <laughs> as a child, I was a recipient of a lot of timeouts, but we won't go down that path. Uh, Dr. Orlando, um, tell us about this whole, it sounds so simple, but it's so powerfully important. So the timeout is that critical moment at the beginning of a procedure when the entire team caring for a patient uh, comes together, they look each other in the eye, and they actually assure just before they begin the procedure that they're doing exactly what they intended to do, the right procedure, the right patient, the right tools are available, the right antibiotics, drugs have been given. They're methodically going through that, and they are engaging one another to help each other ensure that they're all doing the right thing. So that timeout is a powerful moment when the whole team comes together to work on behalf of the patient they're serving. And Pat, I'm curious from your perspective, from seeing that evolution, going to a place where a timeout is okay, where everyone can say, wait, 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 did we do this? And having that culture again of safety, what are your thoughts? I, I think it's um, extremely important to have that uh, where everyone feels like they can have that space um, and voice their concerns. And it's also important for that the patients and families have that as well. So, um, it, again, they are part of the team, uh, and we can't do it without the patients and families as well. So I think it's critically important, and it's one that, um, it, again, is often, most often practiced in uh, U.S. hospitals, um, and sometimes not. And that's where I think uh, it really takes some oversight as well as the culture uh, that uh, Elliot was talking about, is to make sure that uh, everyone embraces it and is on board with that approach. So thank you, Pat. We've, we, uh, we have made as an industry great progress, and some of the examples of what we're talking about today are being uh, spread across uh, every hospital in America, uh, but yet mistakes still happen, errors still occur, and that's part of what we also want to talk about today. What's what is the work in front of us? And I I, I want to be sure that we 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 don't uh, we 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 don't avoid that mm-hmm. that conversation as well because it's it's got to be what I know motivates 
uh, everybody I'm talking to this morning and, and thousands of other people who are dedicated to, to, uh, to great patient care. Absolutely. Now, we also want to get to Maria Castellucci, who has called in from Modern Healthcare Magazine. Maria, you cover quality and safety. And Maria was the one who first pointed out, this is Patient Safety Week. It's been 20 years since this movement was launched. What are you covering when you look across the nation at what's happening? Um, so I cover a lot of what hospitals are doing. Um, so a lot of what you guys have just been talking about, this safety huddles, um, the training that's been going on um, at hospitals, best practices to really streamline um, to streamline care in order to make it the most safe. And then the other thing that I, I cover a lot is what's going on on the regulatory front. So there's lots of efforts by um, CMS, um, which oversees Medicare and Medicaid, to make hospitals accountable. So um, hospitals have to publicly report um, different measures of quality and safety, and it all goes on Hospital Compare and Nursing Home Compare, which are websites for um, consumers, um, people who are on Medicare, um, so they can, you know, they can compare hospitals and they can see um, how um, care compares um, across the board. And Maria, you had sort of the board, yeah. specifically chatted about the idea that that's such a tiny population compared to the uh, compared to what a health system or who the groups that health systems are treating that um, you didn't feel it was the best way to look at quality and safety. Right now, it may be the only way, but it wasn't. You were saying the future has to have better examples, has to have a better sort of sneak peek into what makes safety. What are your hospitals doing? Can you talk a little about that and where you think it's going? Yeah, yeah. So I think what's happening is we we are trying to make healthcare more like other industries, right? I mean, this this push to consumerism is really is really trying to get infiltrated into healthcare. We have Amazon coming into healthcare too, and a lot of that attention is about, is around costs. Um, people are paying more and more out of pocket for healthcare, and and it's less focused on the quality and safety of what's actually going on in hospitals. So I think people are. They're worried about healthcare in terms of cost, um, but if you are wanting to compare and have and shop like a consumer from a cost or from a quality and safety perspective, you don't really have great tools right now. Um, and I think that is because we kind of lack we lack a lot of measures right now, a lot of quality and safety measures in the space. You can't really know with a lot of degree of specificity. So let's say if I'm a, a woman um, living in Connecticut. And I want to compare um, maternity care in hospital, community hospitals in my area. Um, you, you, there's the Leapfrog Group. I was actually going to mention the Leapfrog Group. They um, grade hospitals based on their safety, and the hospitals publicly um, they have to complete a survey, um, and that grades hospitals based on their safety. But they're really, so other than that, there really are just not a lot of tools out there for. Um, consumers to really get a good sense of, for this specific procedure, how safe is this hospital compared to ho the hospital down the block? And what are um, all the I factors that go into yeah, that? Yeah, exactly. I think we have made a lot of progress in terms of transparency around cost, just because that is what that is a real concern for a lot of people, is that just healthcare is just too expensive. Mm -hmm. But it has been where a lot of the attention has been. And I think we, start, we still are in the baby stages of getting to the, the ideal world where a patient could go on a website pick a hospital and see all of these different, you could, you could pick, you know, 
I am going, I'm going to have a baby. And you could see all of the different kinds of um, um, quality measures that go into that because it also has to educate the, the consumer because the consumer isn't going to know these different types of um, medical terms. So it also has to be a, d- a degree of, um, of educating. And it also should have, should have the cost. It should be very interactive, and we're just not—we're not there yet. So, Maria, I think that would be the ideal place. Yeah, as someone who is uh, reporting nationally on this, what are you encouraged yeah. by as you do your research and your reporting? Um, and what are what are, what's what, what are one or two areas where you you know there's more focus that needs to be conducted here? I am always really encouraged by the hospitals that I speak with, hospitals want to do the right thing for their patients. And there are hospitals working hard to try to get at these issues of um, safety and quality. We're obviously not there yet. Um, the IHI earlier last year, it was May May of last year, they launched a, a safety committee. And Real quick, included- I just want real quick, explain to our listeners what IHI is. Oh, yes. It's the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, and um, it's a national organization that includes um, quality leaders from across the country. Um, And they um, formed early last year in May a um, patient safety committee, and it includes um, 23 organizations from across the country, including um, the CMS, which oversees Medicare and Medicaid, um, the FDA, the Joint Commission, which accredits hospitals um, to make sure that they're following through with um, all of the conditions of participation for, Medi- for Medicare and Medicaid, and that includes safety issues, so making sure the hospital is safe. Um, and they they did recognize that we are kind of at a we're at a stall right now. That is what I am hearing from people. We're kind of we're kind of at a stalling point. We're have we haven't made the progress that we had we had made in the beginning of the quality movement when Air to Air's Human first came out, and we really had the launch of chief quality officers and chief safety officers. We had the you know the implementation of huddles and best practices, standardization, all the things that are really commonplace today. Um, we haven't really moved from that yet. We're kind of at a stalling point, and they're saying. We want to take a total systems approach. So having these organizations from na- from the national level, so the FDA, the CMS, working with hospitals, health systems, patient safety organizations, all working together to try to take a collaborative approach to what can we be doing on a large scale to really get at why we're why we're seeing this stall. Fascinating. So I, I am encouraged I, by that. That's. You know? Really helpful. Maria Castellucci with Modern Healthcare Magazine. We sure appreciate you being on our program. Yeah, thank you. All right. We'll hear, we'll hear back from her later on this year for sure. Now, I want to get back, though, to Pat and Project Patient Care and some of what Maria was saying. As you listen in, one of the things that was very important to you, and we can delve into this in our second half hour as well, you talk a lot about health literacy and what our patients understanding. And I think that's this perfect dovetailing with the folks who are in the room today and your experience. Tell us what you mean by health literacy. Uh, Health literacy is uh, where you want to communicate effectively uh, with a patient. And so sometimes that means uh, addressing any language barriers that may exist, as well as talking in uh, what we sometimes in CMS, uh, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, calls common language. And so bringing it to a level that they can understand and can make decisions upon it. 
One of the things is there's been many different surveys to assess uh, the literacy of patients, help the literacy of patients, uh, but it oftentimes changes as the chronic disease advances. Uh, they need to really also uh, step back and assess where the patient is. There's some simple questions that many clinicians are asking and many practices are in terms of what is the confidence level of understanding their their health uh, condition, as well as how they can self-manage it. So it, it gets at the understanding of the patient level. Mm-hmm. And then there's also what we call health numeracy, uh, which is really important, especially as it comes to medication management. So the patient and the clinician can explain in simple terms what you know, taking so, twice daily uh, medication means. So and what, uh, as you talk about that, and we're talking about pharmacy, I do want to bring in our head of phar- pharmacy, Eric Arlia, briefly, to talk about that journey. When somebody makes, an, makes a, 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 hey, I'm, I'm a prescription in the hospital, someone needs a, some medication, tell us just in the beginning, and then we'll take a quick break, we'll come back to it. But Eric, how does that get to you and your team? So we, we have tried some, some new programs recently to help uh, improve patients' understanding their medications. Uh, you know, I think a big part of what has changed is um, a real focus on when patients come into the hospital and when they're discharged to the hospital, making sure that we have accurate lists uh, when they come in and when they leave. Uh, we've, we've had some new programs where we, we have pharmacists that will um, – uh, deliver medications to patients, go over them with them. We have some programs in some of our clinics where we have pharmacist specialists that are um, working directly on this topic with patients. Uh, the role of pharmacy, I think, is going to continue to grow in this area. Using medications safely and effectively has a big impact on both quality and on financial aspects. It's really becoming more and more important in keeping patients healthy. All right. Eric Arlia with our pharmacy. We are going to take a quick break. You are listening to Healthcare Matters. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Healthcare Matters. We are talking about the safety of hospital care in America. Uh, we're having a great conversation uh, about the progress we have made as an industry since uh, the Sentinel report was issued by uh, the Institute of Medicine to Air is Human. And we are talking this morning with Pat Merriweather, who is the executive director with Project Patient Care, a national expert in the field of advocating authentic patient and family engagement. And she uh, was involved after uh, she uh, experienced something very personal in her life that she shared with us earlier in the show. Uh, Dr. Rocco Orlando is the chief medical officer for Hartford Healthcare and is very passionate about healthcare safety. Uh, Stephanie Calcasola leads our quality and safety efforts for all of Hartford Healthcare and is a, a trained nurse and a nationally recognized leader in this field. And Eric Arlia is our leader in the system pharmacy and has been a pharmacist for 25 years and has really extraordinarily dedicated to improving the safe use of medication for those we serve. Welcome back. Welcome back. We were talking about something that you may not know about as a listener, 
but that is absolutely critically important in the healthcare industry. There is a movement. It is called high reliability. And what that means is moving to a system with no errors, zero. So here to talk about sort of how do we get there over these 20 years, amazing people have worked diligently, but we're not there yet. Let's get right to Dr. Rocco Orlando so he can delve in and sort of explain what is high reliability? How do we get there? Yeah, Rebecca, thanks very much. So our commitment to high reliability is a commitment to providing error-free care. And that's something that we've done at Hartford HealthCare for the past six years. It's been a statewide initiative through all of the hospitals in Connecticut to use these principles of high reliability. Not an accident that uh, one provides error-free care, and so it's an extensive use of training in the principles of how you remain in the moment, how you remain mindful, strategies to limit the risk of error as part of cultural training. At Hartford HealthCare, we've trained over 13,000 people in these principles. We also use uh, uh, technology to train them. We have a large simulation center, the Center for Education, Simulation, and Innovation, uh, where we train people in these principles in real-life simulations of patient care. And one real example we had talked about, tell us about the training for um, for OBGYNs and when people are delivering babies, this shoulder dysplasia. There's been dramatic, that's something I'm bringing up because there's a specific result. Yeah, so the obstetrical uh, training has been very important, and, and that's an area where most uh, uh, most deliveries are uh, uncomplicated and go well, uh, but every once in a while there's one that has problems. And so we have trained our teams, our labor and delivery, our obstetricians, our delivery room nurses. They come together in our simulation center, and they simulate uh, what to do when things go wrong. What do you do for that tough delivery, that tough complication? And by being prepared, it means that when in the real world you face that situation, Situation, that team is prepared and will do the right thing and get us to a good and that mom and baby to a good outcome. So increasingly we're seeing the uh, engagement with uh, new technologies. Robotic surgery is a perfect example, I think, and, and other new technology that uh, clinicians are adopting to improve care. Uh, obviously, the, the simulation center helps train our, our providers uh, in, in this way before they uh, even touch a patient, uh, so to speak. Um, talk to me about how these high reliability principles uh, and the technology that's emerging uh, to help us be safer are coming together and making an impact. Well, it's a combination of technology, whether it's using the electronic health record to provide reminders, whether it's checklists, uh, we're using technology. good example is in the operating room, uh, we don't want to leave any of our tools in the patient at the end of the operation. We don't want to leave any clamps and retractors uh, or, or surgical sponges. So we track those with technology. That Those devices are all marked uh, with, uh, with radio frequency markers. Uh, we scan the patient. We scan the devices uh, to ensure that we're not leaving any anything behind that we didn't intend to leave behind. So a combination of diligence and technology. And I want to point out to our listeners, because when you're talking about it, it doesn't make sense. But to sort of paint this picture for you, if you envision when you're at the grocery store and you're scanning something, literally that is exactly what's happening in the OR. If you have a pet who has a microchip, every single sponge has a microchip. And you're scanning that to ensure that they don't get left behind. Because 20 years ago, it wasn't infrequent. And and not all of this is technology-based. Some of it is just practical and common sense and things that we have uh, standardized across the the operating rooms in particular in this case. And it's a simple thing like the count. 
you know, how many things did we start with before the surgery and how many do we have when we're done and making sure that those reconcile in a way that, so again, it's not rocket science, but it is about standardizing the way care gets provided across multiple settings as well. As we talk about technology, and we have Eric Arley here, I feel we, we cut you short as you were talking about pharmacy. Technology when it comes to pharmacy, technology when it comes to making sure that there is um, met- the reconciliation, that people are taking their medication. Tell us how, how technology has helped from the pharmacy perspective. Sure. Like many people have commented in the last hour, when you think back over the last 20 years, it's amazing how the technology has changed, and it's no different in pharmacy. 20 years ago, we would receive a handwritten order off a fax machine, and we would key it into a computer system that wasn't connected to anything else, and then it would be hand-transcribed. All of that work is electronic now. Uh, we, We talked a little bit about barcoding and radio frequency tags. We use that very frequently in pharmacy. Medications are scanned. Uh, before they're given to patients. Every time we come up with a system like that, it adds another layer of safety to the system. Uh, We will always need high reliability principles to do our best work, but a good technology continues to give us uh, more tools in that space. And that's, that's a perfect segue, actually, to patient tools. Am I cutting you off, Eric? No, I was going to mention how um, in terms of medication reconciliation, which is what we were talking about earlier, um, it's really important uh, that we know an accurate list of meds that patients are on. There's a lot of technology out there now. There's apps that can keep track of that medication. Uh, also, many, um, many health systems such as ours have, have it built into their electronic health record. We have a system called MyChart Plus. Uh, where a patient's uh, medication list can be kept accurate. That that is all interconnected to the systems we use when you're uh, receiving care in any of our sites. Uh, So it it gives us full transparency without any um, points of transcription error. Uh, for uh, a dose or or a medication name to get um, mistaken. Now, Pat, I know you're passionate about this and flagging and electronic health records and and sort of turning that into a patient tool. What are your what is your take on all this? It, the the uptake on the information uh, for electronic health records really really varies by organization, and it has to do with the amount of outreach and support that is provided to patients. You know, some have developed kiosks within hospitals. Some work with their practices and have the uh, patients sit down and, you know, with somebody other than the clinician, somebody sit down and walk them through their how to access the electronic health record. It's been extremely helpful uh, for patients for not only setting up appointments and uh, but also communicating and verifying uh, what they thought they heard in the class, in the office or at the hospital uh, to make sure that uh, they're utilizing the uh, medications properly or the treatment care that they're doing at home. And it is also helpful for caregivers, other family members or caregivers, to be able to access and to assist uh, their, their loved one as well. So it is on the uprise. Um, it's certainly, you know, it, again, there's um, in hospital services, it's been very good. In services outside of the hospital, the uptake has been a little bit slower. Yeah, so. let, yeah let's, the, let's talk about what's happening here with the, the uh, patient portal uh, that, 
that we're using at Hartford Healthcare. Pat, this is, I think, a, a real lead-in from where you were just going with your observations about the industry. And I think this is a, an example where technology and consumerism uh, connect. And uh, maybe I'll ask Dr. Orlando to talk a bit about uh, the patient portal and, and how it affects uh, things like medic- medication uh, errors and uh, consumerism. Yeah, so I, I think uh, the, the, one of the great success stories of medication administration has been in the hospitals where we have fewer medication errors now as a result of technology. But Pat correctly points out in the home, in the ambulatory environment, less so. Uh, it's very confusing. Uh, we, When we go to see the doctor, we get different prescriptions. It's not always clear when we go home and look at our medicine cabinet, what's the active prescription, uh, what's in there that's old. So keeping track of that is important. And so we now use a patient portal, uh, which keeps track for the patient of all of their active medications, what's there. And more important, it provides the opportunity for that patient to provide feedback to their doctor uh, about that and to correct it uh, online uh, so that there can be a dialogue both in person when they're in the office but also electronically through this uh, through this portal uh, to try and make sure that everyone understands what they're supposed to be taking and what they might actually be taking. So right. that communication, I do want to delve into this because communication and it, it's critical. One of the things that Pat has seen in this movement and one of the things that you've been focused on is making sure that patients and caregivers and families are all part of that same team. Uh, I want to talk about why that is so important and the tools that make that a little bit easier. You had talked about the fact that being on the same team, it, it's a better choice for patients. Can you delve in a little bit to the science of why? Yes. Um, it actually, it's, you know, it's, it's sort of um, simple science uh, because if, you, if we know we've been advancing in healthcare, but we still have uh, patients not taking the medications or understanding treatment or coming back in, um, you know, for readmissions, we know there's a gap. And so the gap is typically, you know, you can't do, uh, you can't improve without the patient. And so we oftentimes talk about it's not at the patient, it's with the patient, that the patient is involved in the discussions as well as the treatment and care plans. And so, so the science has shown that uh, when you do engage patients in their care uh, through shared decision-making, different uh, strategies and techniques that are used to engage the patient and the family and the caregiver, that it really has an impact in terms of adhering to a health plan uh, that both parties decide upon, as well as identifying any reasons as to why the patient feels they can't follow through with a care plan. And that's really important to develop interventions and strategies with the patients so that they can follow a care plan uh, that has been agreed upon. So that brings me back to this, to my chart, to having this electronic tool that really gives you a sneak peek or having those open notes when you're all looking at the same information together versus doctor holds everything and you're not, you're not really in on the conversation. The, there's been a dramatic shift. I want to talk about some of the other tools for patients. Um, it sort of started 20 years ago with patient notebooks. That's something um, from another guest that we had had when we talked about 
uh, talked about patient safety, the Josie King Foundation. We know that if you are documenting your questions, and now that's evolved. It used to be a notebook um, at Hartford Healthcare. You can download it. We we have it available for everyone. But that's a hard copy, and there are a lot of free apps out there that are patient notebook apps that make it a little bit easier because a they're free. They're on your phone. You can do that on my chart too. There are lots of different options. But those checklists and asking the right questions, and I don't want to be remiss and not talk about hand hygiene, empowering people. If you're in that room as a patient, as a loved one, why is it so important, Dr. Orlando, to say, I didn't see you wash your hands. Could you do that for me? Yeah, so hand hygiene, washing your hands before any medical intervention, before patient uh, contact is important uh, because we know that uh, that, that the hands of providers uh, can transmit uh, hospital-acquired infections. So essential that we get that right and also uh, essential that empowered patients ask questions of their caregivers. Are they doing that? It may be about hand hygiene. It may be about medications. Uh, when receiving uh, someone's in the hospital, either they or their family member should ask uh, the, the nurse who's giving them the medic- medication, what is this and why am I getting that? So it's about empowering people, encouraging transparency uh, so that the, the patient and the family are part of the team. Yeah, I, w- I want to talk about this shifting culture in our hospitals uh, across the country and certainly here in Connecticut. Uh, and, and the encouragement I, I get from this shift in, from thinking about the people we're caring for and working with uh, to improve their health as consumers as well as patients. Historically, my view ab- about this has been that we typically tend to fall into a pattern of thinking of patients as passive recipients of what we do. Uh, and I think the advent of the term consumer, uh, although upsetting to some of us in the traditional world of, of medical care, uh, is an important way to begin to shift the thinking, both in terms of how we on the provider side treat patients as consumers and how as patients as consumers actively take a responsibility for engaging with us in a meaningfully different way. And I want to go to a program that we instituted about six months ago called the CARE program, which uh, I, I think comes out of a reflection of a fundamental shift from all of this work that Pat was instrumental in, in starting 30 years ago uh, with still a lot of work uh, in front of us for more transparency and more engagement with patients and family members. Dr. Orlando, could you describe the CARE program for us? Now, the CARE program is really about communication, early communication when there's uh, an adverse event, an unexpected uh, clinical event, uh, a complication. It's really about being forthright with patients and families that something unexpected has happened and it's making a commitment to, to honestly discuss that. And if it turns out that there is medical error at Hartford HealthCare, we will describe that and we will admit that and we will have that conversation with the patient and the family. Uh, so it's really being open and transparent. And Pat, your family's uh, experience was really what we see over and over. Uh, the, the, the family really wants to be sure that, that what happened to their loved one won't happen to someone else again. So it's really part of that transparency is to then get back to the family and say, this is what happened. And also, this is what we're going to do to ensure that this never happens to some other family. So, Dr. Orlando, that's actually a perfect um, launch into the debate that we're seeing now and over the last few years about to criminalize or not criminalize. And I know Eric had really strong feelings about this. So not to get into the weeds, but we know medical error in Tennessee 
Um, the nurse right now, I want to say, is um, is in the courts really now possibly going to jail for homicide, manslaughter. It's a debate. Do you criminalize the family of the loved one who is deceased from this horrible medication area? Doesn't want her to be considered a criminal. And that sort of reminds me of what Pat went, went through. You didn't want to sue. You didn't want. You wanted it to get better. Um, let's talk about that culturally. Do you criminalize or not? So when I think about when I think about that case, um, you know, it, it's incredibly tragic in hearing what other people who have had family members have these issues come up. Everybody wants to learn from them. Uh, that that to me is the biggest reason why um, a case like that, you know, going down the road of criminalizing it is, is concerning because the worst thing that could come out of that is that there's less transparency. We've talked a lot about transparency in the last hour. Uh, you know, since that error came to light, there's been uh, multiple um, multiple good articles from the Institute for Safe Medical Practice on strategies, getting really into the, the weeds of pharmacy of all the little things that we should all have in place everywhere in the country to make sure that that particular error is highly unlikely to occur in our institution. And we only get that when people are uh, able to report things and feel comfortable moving forward when an error takes place. Pat, I know you have strong feelings about this. Can you weigh in? I I definitely do. I I think that um, any one of us that is not a clinician in in a non-clinical setting can transpose numbers, can spell wrong, you know, and and there's that auto-correction that occurs. Um, But in healthcare, those protections, those systems to protect uh, both the patient and the caregivers are are not fully developed. And as you said before, uh, that those are the systems that we want people to be able to identify errors and to build systems around it so it will never happen again. I I do volunteer work at a a hospital in in Chicago. I've been there for about 28 years. And I know the passion and compassion that uh, the staff have in healthcare settings. You don't get into healthcare, uh, you know, uh, for the money. It's certainly for for the commitment, for that altruistic um, feeling that caregivers have. And so to criminalize and penalize somebody that commits an error, and it truly was an error, uh, that is it's just wrong. It, it sends a bad message to caregivers. It sends a, a message to also family members that don't want uh, the care provider to be penalized that way. But for us to have the systems built around caregiving, uh, and the patients so that this never happens again. Yeah, the evidence is interesting in this regard, at least from my own experience, uh, when in the hospital setting, when we begin to um, create an expectation of the culture that we will report on things that are happening that are going wrong, uh, and it, it takes some time to change a culture, to move it in any direction, and in particular that one, uh, it's very often that you actually see the numbers of errors and mistakes uh, go up uh, for some period of time. And it's it's uh, something we've had to come to – I've had to get comfortable with uh, understanding that it's, you know, it's the uh, leading indicator of uh, creating a transparent uh, – a more transparent culture in the organization. And it's really scary to sort of – it's 
to celebrate the near miss, (laughs) right? It's scary, but it didn't happen. And having those safety huddles to say, hey, everyone, this almost happened. We all need to know about it. And thank goodness it didn't. It's scary to see all of that. So we we know that from the aviation industry. We know that uh, where the culture is that when there is error, you report it and you're encouraged to report it, whether it's in the cockpit or whether it's in the control tower. And so to not report it really means that it goes underground and you don't have the transparency to learn when there are problems so that you can then correct them. Yeah. So it's a just essential uh, that, that – and so this criminalization, this, uh, this nurse in Nashville, Tennessee, who's now under manslaughter charges uh, for a medication error, uh, it's, it's chilling because it really won't get us where we need to in terms of making our hospitals safer. So let, let's come back our last few minutes of our show to, to get to a promise I made when we started this morning, which is uh, really enumerating a few of the tools um, and capabilities – uh, and information sites that are available for patients and families to be better advocates uh, in in their own care. So, Pat, do you want to start that, and then we can talk about some of the apps that are available, like the the patient notebooks. And what are your thoughts? What are the best tools that a patient could have? Uh, uh, there's there's many uh, that are out there because there's many more patient advocates than there have been ever before. And also, there's some government websites, the uh, Agency for Healthcare Research and Quality, ARC, A-H-R-Q.gov, as well as CMS under the Medicare site. And people often think that it's just for Medicare patients, but it covers all patients. And so those are some of the sites. You mentioned the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. Um, again, many sites in which there's uh, information out there. And I did just want to mention that one of the icons of this movement for patient and family advocates, especially family advocates, Bob Melizzo, uh just died this past Thursday. And he was the one that brought to light an error that occurred in April of 2008 when his daughter died. Um, she was a mother and a, a wife. And... Um, uh, they they joined the hospital safety committee as a result of that and were instrumental in bringing to light other cases, uh, but working with the hospital in improvement. So there's many ways that uh, patients can access information and certainly Googling as well as going to their local healthcare sites such as Hartford Healthcare. You know what, Pat, that's a great point that we didn't say, that there are so many patient councils, patient advocates, and yet, and throughout our system, throughout any hospital system in Connecticut, you know, we want to hear from you and we do want you to be a part of those, of those councils. And Elliot, any thoughts on that? I, I think it, it, this is a, a, an effort that takes all of us uh, to, mo- to move it forward uh, in, in a way that we feel, feel good about. The pace is inadequate of improvement. Uh, there is a lot of improvement, but we have a long way to go to assure the safety of the patients who come to us at often their most vulnerable times. And I just encourage all of us as consumers of care, as patients of care, ask questions, get involved. Um, and and be be a partner with your provider in the care that you receive. Great advice. A huge thank you to all of our guests this morning, Pat Merriweather, Eric Arlia, Stephanie Calcasola, and Dr. Rocco Orlando, also Maria Castellucci. We appreciate all of your input. Thank you so much. We will see you in just a few weeks. This is Healthcare Matters. This has been Healthcare Matters, sponsored by Hartford HealthCare. Tune in next month as we continue to discuss the status of healthcare, determine what works and what doesn't, and work to bridge the gap.
Healthcare Matters on WTIC. News Talk 1080 at WTIC.com. We're healthy.